This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to what would have been day five of Wimbledon 2020, the first day of third round action, but what is, in fact... Even better than that, sort of. Um, Day five of Wimbledon Relived, when we're taking a trip back to 1992. And spoiler alert, Andre Agassi's first Grand Slam title, beating Goran Ivanisevic in a five-set final in what would have been, unfortunately for Goran, just the start of his Wimbledon final heartbreak, which, of course, we know mercifully... uh, ended up in a in a in a happy tale which we'll be covering later on in our Wimbledon relived series but for today we're covering Andre Agassi's triumph and Goran Ivanisevic's heartbreak in in the heart of the 90s David your sweet spot oh i've just spent the last however long we've been watching that match just in ecstasy in 90s ecstasy uh because yeah it's it's just such a treat to rewatch those matches because those are the matches that made me fall in love with the sport. This was the the year um, before and after where I became utterly obsessed with tennis, and it's people like Andre Agassi and Goran Ivanovic that were there were the reasons for that. I, I didn't like Agassi at the time; I wanted everybody to beat him. But watching it back, I don't feel like that at all now. Can you remember why? What what, what did you take against in particular? Or were you just being a contrarian, like with Becca? There was a definite. There was a big part of that. There was a big part of being a contrarian. I had discovered tennis, and part of me wanted to be an evangelist for the sport and get everybody else interested in it. Another part of it wanted everybody to go away and leave me alone because this is my sport, and you all coming along and watching Wimbledon and thinking you know all about it and telling me tennis fan about Andre Agassi and all you know about him well I don't care because I follow it year round now that's what that's what the attitude I had ah uh, you wanted to be the guy that in the conversation about tennis when, when tennis would come up in the pub and someone would go oh that Agassi he's cool isn't he yeah I want him to win Wimbledon you'd be like well actually I'm a really big Kevin Curran fan <laughs> exactly right that's exactly what I wanted to be and uh, and I was also I'm, I mean I was supporting people like Pete Sampras who most people would go who's that at that point, because he didn't, he hadn't done anything yet. Um, so I, I was just fed up with the, all the hype, really. I didn't like all the hype, which is ironic, really, given that I love hype now. <laughs> Matt, if you were a thing in 1992, <laughs> a, a person even, uh, do you think you would have been an Andre Agassi fan? Yes. I think that's easy to say now, but honestly, watching that was so thrilling. I'm going to be honest here. When we were coming up with our list of Wimbledon matches to do and the ones not to do. Obviously, there's a big, long list we had, probably 25 matches that we had to whittle down to 14. I didn't say this because I knew David would go for me, given his love of the 90s. But I was thinking in my head, 
do we need Agassi winning? Like he won one Wimbledon. Do we need that? Is that such a big story? I mean, there was no point airing those views. And we'd already we'd already talked David out of the nineteen ninety one French Open final yes. between Agassi and Courier. So this was an absolute non negotiable. But I mean, all I can say is how wrong I was because this this match, this story, Agassi winning his first slam on grass is is so thrilling and I don't think I don't think you can really capture the excitement of it without watching it and reading about it and hearing what people were saying at the time. You need to have either lived through it like David or go back and properly properly watch it and this is the first time I've done that and um yeah just so glad that that I have had that chance. David how different is it watching it now knowing that hair was a wig? <laughs> um yeah that it makes no difference to me I have to say it it amuses me um but I just lose myself in that time period and I lose myself in the matchups and I feel like 28 years have passed but all of the tennis they are playing it's not like when you go back only 12 years earlier and it looks it feels and looks like a completely different sport this looks like what we have today in many ways and I think that that's a testament to how great Andre Agassi was because this tennis that he's playing would have stood up today he he, his shot making his aggression his his yeah, timing off the baseline and and power. Every, everything transfers t- to the current day except the outfits. Well, Chris Clary, who we're going to be hearing from later, wrote a New York Times piece calling Agassi both a blip and a harbinger because he was a blip because <laughs> the serve volley dominance at Wimbledon carried on for the next few years with Sampras. But you look at it now and the people who've won Wimbledon most most recently, Murray, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, doing it from the baseline. But Agassi was the first to do it and so ahead of his time, such a revolutionary. And Goran Serve, of course, would absolutely stand up, more than stand up today. I mean, racket technology has advanced even since 92 to the extent that, well, I mean, this is, this is a few years out of date now, but I, I remember... Uh, being at a Champions Tour event with him in Zurich a few years back and he served what he thought was his fastest ever serve then and he would have been, well, into his 40s probably at the time or certainly at least 40. So, um, yeah, I, I suspect that, I mean, we'd, we'd, we'd have to ask him about this one day but you know what what Andy Murray was saying about Feliciano Lopez the other day that it's he his, his service motion is such that he can hit it all day long and not get tired. I, I, I as much as... Goran's service motion isn't quite as fluid as someone like Lopez's. He's got that kind of jutty outy elbow thing going on at the start, which has become a a hallmark of the service motion of um, of Croatian players. But I I, I suspect that uh, he could hit that serve all day long. What also strikes me watching it back, and I felt it at the time, and even though I was angry about it because everybody Angusy played, I wanted to beat him all the way through that championship. Crikey, David. Yeah, no, it's it's true. I was in denial. Hang on, every every single opponent? Yeah, everyone. Of Andre Agassi's? Yes, all of them. Okay, I'm just going gonna, gonna to fact check you on that. And go back through the draw. Well, he almost got thrown out for swearing in one of the one of the early matches. Andre Chesnikov, are you supporting him? Yeah, absolutely. Round one. Eduardo Masso from Belgium, round two. You, you were a fan of him? Yeah, go on, Eduardo. Derek John yeah. Rostagno. Rostagno, Derek Rostagno, <laughs> Catherine, come on. This is a this is a, a player who very nearly knocked uh, Boris Becker out of the US Open in 1989. He had match point against Becker in 89 and Becker saved the match point and went on and won the title. <laughs> we have fully unleashed David. <laughs> Make me feel better, Matt. Have you heard of Rostagno, Matt? No, no. Okay, that's good. Um, uh, I'm having to look up first names here. Christian Sassano, were you a fan of him? Round four? Wasn't wasn't a fan of him. I was an anti fan of Andre Agassi. He was a qualifier. He did well, didn't he? But the but the thing is that. So you were cheer- just just to clarify, David, you were cheering for all these fellas against Agassi. No question about it, because I was I didn't like the hype. You can't you can't explain the level of hype, having not lived through it. It's it's it was in excess of everything that we have today. 
I think, about one individual player because now there is a couple of them, Nadal, Federer, Serena Williams. that, And also tennis was bigger back then as a, as a kind of more mainstream sport. Um, and, and Agassi just dominated the hype conversation. Nobody else came close. Why? Because he hadn't won a slam. He... He had reached three finals at this stage. We're getting ahead of ourselves. I haven't eaten. I don't know. Don't know how you're managing to uh, to even remember 1992 before I've done my my scene set of what was happening that year. Shall I do that now? Well, um, let me just fi- finish to explain <laughs> that. that, that <laughs> no, no is the answer to that. <laughs> that yeah, that the hype around him transcended the sport because people outside of the sport were interested in tennis because of him. But why? Because of the look, because of the clothes. The 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 he, he had the world's wrapped around his finger, really. The fact that he did that whole unveiling as to what he would wear the year before, having not played Wimbledon for four years in protest because they wouldn't let him wear what he wanted. He had to wear predominantly white. And so even even after the French Open in ninety one, he is He's doing an interview, having lost the French Open final, saying, um, they're saying, what, what are you going to wear? And he's saying, well, they said I could wear this. And he's, he's wearing bright purple. He's still making fun of everybody. I, I'm, I'm just trying to think of an example. I mean, obviously, I suppose there isn't an equivalent um, to this extent, but somebody who, 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 who has cut through the sport without having the achievements to match it. Obviously, he did go on to have the achievements to match it, but at this stage, he hadn't... He'd reached three finals. He was he was known as a guy that couldn't couldn't get over the line, um, and 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 yet he was cutting through all the noise and transcending the sport. I'm, I mean, Nick Kyrgios is the only example I can think of somebody who doesn't have the achievements to to back up that kind of that kind of status. But but something about him connects. Yeah. I mean, he, he'd reached. He'd reached three slam finals and beaten all the big, best players in the game. But as Bud Collins called him, uh, referred to him in the post-match interview, he calls him Andre Gagassi. Yeah, the bloke's just won Wimbledon and he, <laughs> and he has to answer to the nickname of Andre Gagassi. Yeah, but d- d- I was in denial. As much as I sort of wanted all the opponents to win, I was secretly marvelling at his the way he was beating these guys at their own game on their surface and it it had never been done before and there were good players from the back like Bjorn Borg Jimmy Connors but Ivan Lendl could never win Wimbledon no matter how hard he tried even though he gave up French Opens to try to prepare Agassi didn't even bother preparing he just came off a hard court for 20 minutes and and he had this ability to diffuse these big serve and volley games and I still feel today that it is probably the greatest grass court achievement that I've ever seen. Also in 1992, while well, Andre Agassi was busy winning Wimbledon, Heather Watson, Diego Schwartz, Schwartzman and Bernard Tomic were born, as were Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez and, well, both Pliskova sisters. Welcome to the, the world, one and all. It was the year that Charles and Diana separated. Princess Di, of course, having been... Um, been seen at the the previous year's uh, women's final between Steffi Graf and Gabriella Sabatini that we covered yesterday. It was the fire at Windsor Castle, the famous fire there, uh, the end of apartheid or South Africans voting for the end of rep- apartheid. The Cartoon Network launched. McDonald's opened its first restaurant in China. Bill Clinton became president of the USA um, and Bosnia and Herzegovina declared independence. Now, of course, this is the, the breakup of the former Yugoslavia and the, the previous year you'd had Croatia declaring independence. So this was Goran's second year on tour representing Croatia. He went on to carry the Croatian flag at the Barcelona Olympics later this summer and won Croatia's first medal. And it was... It was a huge deal for him that and representing Croatia was an enormous part of his identity. Yeah, he he would follow matches and be asked about what was a horrific war going on in his homeland at the time that he was trying to play tennis matches. He was calling home to split and Croatia's phone lines weren't working 
Um, and so he, he spent months trying to get through and not being able to. He would publicly declare that he was trying to win for his country and he would receive death threats from from people around the world because of how vocal he was in support of Croatia, this newly formed country. And yeah, it it must it would have been a very difficult time for him emotionally at that at that point. Um but at the same time he was trying trying to carve a career and, and doing a very good job of it. I don't think of him as a sort of overtly political person, Goran, but but he was at the time. He was critical of, of Monica Selesh for, for refusing to discuss what, what she called the unrest um in her in her homeland. He um he wore a warm up suit with the slogan Stop Aggression at Croatia um at a tournament. I think that was uh at the previous year and it's it's funny, obviously we know Goran and, and we know him from the Champions Tour and, and as a coach now. And the Goran the Goran that we were watching in the final today and the Goran I'm reading about there being, you know, quite quite political and outspoken, that wasn't the Goran that I saw on the court in the nineteen ninety two final. He's so shy and reserved and just within himself. It's I don't know, I was really struck by it. Mm. Well, I think he is quite shy and I think his kind of he kind of has created a bravado and people have got to know him and they know his story of multiple finals unsuccessful um and him losing his mind on court at times and and he ha- he's hammed it up and people have hammed it up around him so and I think with with age he's become more confident and more comfortable in his own skin but he he was pretty shy and you just see the occasional little flash of either complete meltdown or sarcasm or raise of an eyebrow and the fun character that that he also is yeah there was one moment where he strongly disagreed with a call by one of the line judges and he went over to the umpire and said uh, she's wearing sunglasses but where is the sun (laughs) 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 it's like no wonder she got it wrong and you know maybe a fair point he does a really uh dignified magnanimous interview with the with bud collins just uh on the entryway to center court after the match which we've now grown accustomed to to watching and and he's really really good gives a really clear assessment of the match where it was where it was won and lost and then bud signs off with uh, you know commiserations Goran you know you'll have your time again or something something peppy you know to end on a light note and Goran just goes yeah fine and <laughs> walks off <laughs> and it was just a glimpse of the Goran we know now what I liked about Goran was how wholly he embraced his serve and the number of aces that it struck he was ne- some people would come sometimes reduce him to a serve in their description of him and actually when you watched the match back and deep in the fifth set he's taken Agassi on from the baseline at his own game and he's having some success there was definitely more to his game than just a big serve but he he was the ultimate ace master and he reveled in it he absolutely he he felt that was a there was a beauty in hitting aces and and he would laugh at opponents ability, inability to get them back and how irritated other people got by how good he was at hitting aces and i mean the the previous round he played sampras um and sampras used to do this to other players but by the fourth set, having shared the first two sets, Sampras basically gave up. He basically tanks because he got so disillusioned with walking side to side, getting nowhere near the serve. He said afterwards, Sampras, he was serving to the point where I had absolutely no idea where the ball was going. He's probably got the biggest serve in the game. and Being a lefty, he can serve to both sides. So he's incredibly frustrating to play against. And... You know, to have those compliments coming from Sampras says must say how good Ivan Isovic's serve was. And also I noticed that Ivan Isovic was averaging as many aces per match as Agassi had hit in the whole tournament going into the final. He was he was averaging over twenty five aces every single match. And I noticed in the um in the some of the pre match quotes, um Agassi was bigging up the Goran serve, but he he, he put a slightly more trolly trolly spin 
on 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 bringing up the surf. He said Goran is a little different from the other guys that I've played, Boris Becker and and John McEnroe, who he he'd uh, beaten en route to the final. They depend on their serves to be good, but they are ready for the volley. I think Goran's the kind of guy who depends on his serve only, which <laughs> which is a big up of the serve, but also a little troll of the Goran volley because we sort of lazily think of him as a serve volley, and his volley was okay. Um, but he wasn't, you know, a serve volleyer in the way that Stefan Edberg was a serve volleyer or, or no. Boris Becker or, you know, even Tim Henman. He was a big server that that came to the net because it made sense as a way to, to finish off points. But he was a server. And and yet at the same time, Agassi was fully aware of the threat Ivanisevic posed because he'd never beaten him. And he'd, I mean, he'd played him twice and not even managed to break his serve. He writes in, in Open that... Um, he says, I was expecting to face Pete um, and I felt for Pete because I knew I'd be joining him soon. I have no chance against Ivanisevic. It's middleweight versus heavyweight. The only suspense is whether it will be a knockout or a technical knockout. Um, so, you know, he was he was maybe that's slightly hammed up, but he was aware <laughs> of of the threat that Ivanisevic posed in this in this final for sure. And and even his fix was the higher seed. Yeah, he was the eighth seed. Agassi was was the twelfth seed. Neither of these two were were expected finalists. In fact, the, on the NBC coverage, David, they were they kept on referring back to to the fact that that all of them were expecting Boris Becker to be in that final and yeah. to be the nailed on champion. And it was it was Becker that that Agassi beat in the quarters in a match that I'm I'm quite sure you remember vividly. Oh. Every ball. And to me, Boris Becker was my big chance of getting rid of Andre Agassi from the draw. And Hang on, but you weren't, you weren't a Becker up. fan. No, no, but I, but I, was, I, I disliked Agassi so much at this point because oh of everybody God. else's hype that I, I decided Becker, who'd reached six of the last seven Wimbledon finals and won three of them, he was the man. There's no, you know, yes, Agassi is a, was this incredible counterpuncher and wonderful returner and passing shot artist, but not against Boris Becker. That that's what I thought, and they battled it out over five sets. Agassi won the uh, Becker won the first set. Agassi won the next two sets, six two six two, which is a really jarring couple of score lines on grass for Boris Becker to have against him, and it was. Yeah, you, you. He had some moments, and again, he also played pretty well from the baseline. Did Becker at times on the Agassi serve? That's what I loved watching about Agassi matches on grass: is that he would stay back on his serve, and you would then find out about the baseline games of Boris Becker and Goran Ivanisevic and Pete Sampras because they wouldn't just chip and charge and come straight in; they'd they'd duke it out from the baseline. But when they did come in, this is what really strikes you. And it's it was the same in the semifinals. And we'll hear from John McEnroe's coach, Larry Stefanke, in a minute as well on this subject. But the the beauty of it was when those players did come in on him, he had the answers. It felt to me almost at will. He had two different types of passing shot and a lob. And they didn't know what was coming next. And they'd never seen anything like it before. Agassi is like, what we talk about with Hallett, like the magic ingredient to make a match up interesting. It strikes me like if you've got servant volleyers up against each other, it's kind of a similar contrast in styles. You're not going to get many rallies, but you pop Agassi in and he changes the whole dynamic of the match. And to see him laser passing shots down these really narrow, narrow targets. I was watching the highlights against of the match against McEnroe, and he just does it repeatedly. And it's such a such an absorbing contrast of styles, and it's all because Agassi's doing what he's doing. Yeah, so he beats Boris Becker in the quarterfinals and then in the semifinals, potentially even a more intriguing match. As you say, he takes on John McEnroe, a man with whom he'd been practising for, for the fortnight, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in the moment. McEnroe was, was having a bit of a comeback, a resurgence. He was 32 years old um, by this stage. And, and actually both the, the semi-finals, Goran's and Agassi's, had to be played at the same time because the weather had been so bad over the course of, of that second week. And, and as David said, he's uh, he's had the chance to talk to, to Larry Stefanke, who was coaching McEnroe at that time. And, and Stefanke, recalling that much, he, he said he immediately had a bad feeling about it. It was like the wettest Wimbledon ever. 
Johnny got an 11 a.m. semifinal starting time. And if you know John, that's not good because he didn't do too well in the morning. And um, he was playing so well up to that point in time. And uh, he got a little late start. I'll put it that way. When I picked him up, uh, he had kind of slept in. He would cut, He had Tatum and the family there with him. And it was just, he was, you know, he was, it got off to a wrong foot from the very beginning against Andre. And um, even the warm up going out there, it was, everything felt very, very rushed. And usually Wimbledon semifinals, when you get to that point, you know, everything is uh, very easy and relaxed and you're playing great. And the, the matches start later in the day and so on and so forth. And, and it's very, it kind of, you know, evolves this wasn't this was a big rush and uh, that that's that's what i do remember at the very beginning of that um before that semifinal and it was raining it was you didn't know if you were going to play or not that semifinal that wasn't a pretty scene for johnny andre had never won a, a slam yet i mean it was amazing that wimbledon was his first slam win you look at that draw with the sampers of becker they had a lot of great grass court edberg a lot of great grass court players. Courier was going because he had won the Australian and the French before that. So he was going for three in a row and, and, and you know, hard clay grass, which uh, had not been done in, in a long period of time. So there were a lot of um, that year was uh, 92. It was a phenomenal year. Um, and Johnny was resurrecting his career, basically, at 32, 33 years old. In terms of what Andre Agassi did that day and in fact the previous round he beat boris becker that's right and i mean you know, these are some of the best grass court players in in the open era and for sure that year when you look at that draw david you go down that list and it's very impressive the depth that most of these guys between the steak the beckers sampras curry they all had major wins not like today you know, you had 12 guys. You, I mean, you had I mean, you had Chang. You had everyone in that draw. Cash, who has got a wild card, I guess. He got a wild card in that in that, in that that tournament, and he had to play him second round. He had won the, uh, Wimbledon. We're talking grass court. I, I think you're right. In the open era, that was the best year maybe ever when it came to, like, just straight champions playing in, 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 a, in a single event. And strictly speaking, a non-grass court player won the thing. Just put that into yes. perspective. Yes. Not to mention he had never won one. People for, you know, forget. You know, he was touted since he was 14. I remember watching him watching him, Andre play his first match when he was 14 years old with the real long hair, bulletary out there on the uh, pool court, La Quinta Hotel. And I had to go watch him and, uh, you know, and what he could do with his um, velocity and ball control. And this is when he first started out. Very, very impressive. But Considering he turned pro at like 14, 15, like uh, Chang, um, he didn't win a slam, for, you know, for a long period of time, David, you know, of, of, of development before he kind of like, you know, got on track. And once he won, you know, Wimbledon, and he'll even say he was in shock that Wimbledon would be his first slam win. Because I've asked Andre that. He goes, yeah, I was very surprised that I would, you know, I thought I could never win on the grass. And then that being his first and only one to win on, 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 the, on the grass, you know, and he has all five. I consider the gold medal. You know, he has the four and, the, and then the gold medal, which is, which is uh, you know, something that a lot of guys wish they had that had played the game. Given what he was trying to do against these proper grass court players, I know it was wet, but it was yes. still a fast proper grass court back then I mean, that's right it, it changed that's right didn't it? Uh, it 10 years later it changed but back then yes it did nobody saw this coming did they i mean what how how did he do it how did how did he beat these guys return a serve he was the best returner since connor's and that's the, the one single denominator because it was slippery and wet and there was no roof like i said and they, it was almost like it was an 11 o'clock starting time. He was younger. There were a lot of things going in his favor, and especially beating Boris the round before. But I think the thing that stands out in my mind, his return to serve, Max served uh, not very well at all. Um, and I think it was, a, it was the effect of his return in the sense of forcing, trying to hit spots better than need be. 
and then then relying on a second serve. And you give uh, Andre a second serve with a little less confident or hanging in in the box, he was going to punish you like Connors. And so being a proper grass court player, like you say, like a Becker, like a, a Mac, who served and volleyed both balls like a cash, and you're leaving some second serves hanging, Andre will punish you. And, you know, Andre's serve was underrated. He had a very good kick second serve out, out to Johnny's forehand that would kick out and away to the forehand. And he mixed it up very, very well. And he learned how to hit spots on the box. And, the, you know, the slipperiness of the surface helped him that day and the time when, when they played. Because Johnny was playing the best he had played in multiple years, I would say. But uh, the, what stands out in my mind was his ability to vary the serve, not put himself in a – because he stayed back both. Like, he never came to net. And so Johnny couldn't attack him because he was moving it around very, very well. And Johnny served very poorly that that was the worst he had served by a mile I, I thought from all the matches that went through it was not a good matchup for john he's always fascinating isn't he larry stefanke gives gives such good insights from from a coach's perspective i can't wait to hear him talk about how he he got andy roddick uh, eating two steaks a day i'm determined to to get that <laughs> to get that onto the podcast one day i just wanted to pick up on on the penultimate point he was he was making there, David, about the fact that for most people, Andre Agassi, by that point, uh, over the course of the the three previous Grand Slam finals he he had reached, he was a Grand Slam champion elect. People did expect him to win a Grand Slam, but absolutely nobody thought it was going to be Wimbledon the first time, and absolutely nobody thought it was going to be Wimbledon nineteen ninety two. Um, just want to pick up on a a quote from Curry Kirkpatrick in in Sports Illustrated um, after that that ninety two win. Why would Agassi pick this time? Wallowing in a slump, his shots and his psyche in a shambles. His ranking having dropped as low as seventeen to win his first Grand Slam title. Moreover, after having lost serious face in his three previous Grand Slam finals, twice at the French Open and one at the US Open, after having been ridiculed as some sort of tennis pariah with no substance or heart or nerve, why else would this bizarre yet somehow endearing Las Vegas-bred celeb pick Wimbledon, fair, green, stayed Wimbledon, to turn it all around and make one of the more long-awaited breakthroughs in pop culture history. It's so true, isn't it? I mean, it's it's so Agassi that that was his first. You know, we, a few weeks ago, we were recalling that that 99 French Open win to, to complete, the, complete the career Grand Slam and Everybody had long thought he he would be a French Open champion one day. Nobody thought he was going to be the 99 French Open champion, though, did they? No. And he did things his own way from from the first day he ever arrived on the tennis circuit, including what he wore. He just He just didn't follow convention. He didn't follow in the footsteps of what everybody had set out previously and how you do it. Um, and that ultimately was to his great benefit in that 92 Wimbledon because he was he was coming up with his own aces but they weren't from the serve they were from the ground strokes he would hit winner after winner and he would he would challenge somebody to attack him you heard Larry Stavanky saying there John couldn't attack him because how do you attack him he's got the baseline so he's standing there and if you chip and charge he's going to pass you or he's going to lob you so what do you do it's really difficult and I remember Becker and McEnroe, the look on their face as the doubt, stuff that they'd done to win six Wimbledons between them. This is how you play and win Wimbledon titles. You wait for for your ball, you either serve and volley, or you wait for a ball and you chip, you come and you knock off the volley. There was suddenly doubt in their mind that if they tried to do that, this guy had got the answers. And and it happened time after time. It, there was a feeling of inevitability any time somebody chipped a, a backhand and approached the net. It's like everything they've ever known just being turned on its head. And, I mean, the highlights of that match, McEnroe, Agassi in the semis. McEnroe, as you said, he's he's into his 30s and he looks old. He's got a, He's like wearing a knee brace. Every time he hits the ball, he's... <laughs> 
He's straining and grunting, but you you know he's trying absolutely everything to find a way past Agassiz. You know he's he's serving into the body, serving out wide, he's serving down the tees, coming in, he's chipping, and Agassiz just answers everything. Agassiz's just in the zone in that match. I think he's talked about how calm he felt. I think he says that that was his cleanest, best performance of the tournament, and everything he did. McEnroe just didn't have an answer for and there's one point where he theatrically throws himself to the ground McEnroe because Agassiz hit another line on a passing shot and and it just it just captures the disbelief how is this guy doing this there is some absolutely majestic hands on hips um face chewing wasp expression (laughs) uh, action from John McEnroe in that semi-final he just looks irritated by the whole thing and and uh, as I, I said before we heard from Stefanki there, they had been they'd been hitting partners for the fortnight, Agassi and McEnroe. And McEnroe had tried to give Agassi some some tips, some pointers about about playing on grass. Yeah, he told um he told him to shorten his strokes and it's kind of like the reverse of the ninety nine um French Open where Agassi had inspired Medvedev to play such good tennis against Agassi and now this was McEnroe having inspired Agassi and am I right in saying David I'm sure you've told me this before that Agassi didn't used to practice much on grass even like even before Wimbledon in kind of later years but even this one because he said he he would develop twitches and it would kind of he'd get doubt into the rest of his game so I think yeah. he actually in between the French Open and uh, Wimbledon, I think he mainly practiced on hard courts. I think I think they've made a point that they were green hard courts. Yeah, he, the way Nick Bellatieri tells the story that they literally just practiced for twenty minutes between the French Open and Wimbledon <laughs> on a hard court in Las Vegas. That's all they did. Um, and Agassi had had a a decent French Open, but he'd been absolutely pummeled by Jim Courier in. I think the the quarterfinals or the semifinals. Semifinals. He played, yeah. he played doubles with McEnroe, and I remember watching some of the, those doubles matches. Agassi was wearing a bandana, uh, which didn't happen very often on the tennis circuit. Um, and yeah, I mean, his whole his whole look and his whole "I do it my way" thing was, repulsed you. <laughs> no, to be honest, you hated I, it. I hated it, and I loved it at the same time because I cobbled together my own version of the Agassi outfit. Uh, because you couldn't buy it, you couldn't actually buy the real thing. So I'd try and find versions of it. You, you saw all the players wearing. Ha, ha, hang on, a, hang on a second. Yeah. Hang on a second. You went on. You went from cheering for Derek John Rostagno against Andre Agassi to to buying Agassi's clothes. I was in turmoil, Catherine, because I I I I loved him secretly. These really were some some lost law years, you. weren't they? I was all over the place in my life. <laughs> I loved him and I hated him. I, what can I say? Um, wow. I, I I owned some of those white bicycle shorts that he wore underneath his actual white tennis shorts because that's what players were starting to do. Well, actually, I wonder, was I mean, Goran was a bit of a pioneer of those as well. And apparently Sampras was wearing them. Yeah, all three of them, everybody started doing it. Right. So who who do you th- who are you claiming was the first, the original? Oh, Agassi was the first. Right. But Agassi would do it. In other tournaments, he would do it as part of the look. He would be wearing, say, grey denim shorts with hot pink lycra undershorts beneath them. Tell me that isn't what you tried to emulate. No, I didn't. I went with the white. I could only find the white. So I just went with the white. Because Sampras was doing that, so that was all right. I don't think manufacturers should um, make white cycling shorts. Yeah, they certainly shouldn't be putting them on me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you did that yourself yeah. david yeah i did it yeah yeah I, I and i went down the local park and played <laughs> dressed dressed like this um and in my mind that i was looking like them but turns out i wasn't i thought my rafael nadal three-quarter length short phase was a bad one but um it pales in comparison <laughs> to david's <laughs> at least you were at least you were a child i was 18 <laughs> 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So, it's the <laughs> final. They've both knocked out all of these incredible former champions, maestro grass court players on en route to the final, the eighth seed and the twelfth seed. Who was the favourite going in, David? Well, that's a very good question. I would say probably Goran on paper was the favourite. He was the higher seed and he'd the the aces that he was hitting, I think when you heard any punditry from from people who'd been there and done it, they still couldn't get their head around the idea that a guy could win Wimbledon like Agassi was playing it. Even with the Becker evidence and with the Mackinac evidence, the assumption was this: look, this nobody can get this guy's serve back. So how can you how can you make an imprint on his game if you just can't get a racket on it? Um, I was concerned that Agassi was going to win. I really was concerned um, because I just I could not believe like I said I was intoxicated by what he was doing really it's just that I'd got my own denial in my own brain about what uh, about what he represented and I didn't like it but I also was completely wrapped up in it as well I loved watching it really um, so I I don't know I. I kind of can. I think it it did feel very fifty fifty when the match started because it was ace ace return winner return winner ace. You know, it was that kind of punch and counter punch. It was the it was the ultimate clash in that regard. The very first return of serve that Andre Agassi hits in this final is a clean winner, and Bud Collins goes whoa, and <laughs> and you know they've been building up the Goran Ivanisevic serve. And the first return Agassi gets, he hits it for a clean winner. And that is that is so electrifying. I mean, people... I, I'm not going to argue with anyone who says that Novak Djokovic is the best returner of serve they've ever seen because the way he contorts his body and gets the ball back and is remarkable. But this was a faster court against a massive server. And that combination is something that Djokovic hasn't experienced. And I'm sure I'm sure he would deal with it. But Agassi did deal with it. And it's it's 
it's such an exciting return of serve because it's like a it's like a kind of counterattacking move in martial arts or something. He's turning Goran's power back on him, back at his toes, and it becomes a weapon for Agassi. To, he, he turns Ivanisevic's big weapon into his own big weapon, and, and it's absolutely stunning to watch. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't connect all the time, but when he does, those are the moments which which make the match kind of sizzle. In the opening game of the match, there's, or in the opening few points of the match, there's a couple of rallies which are, you know, they're not, they're not Djokovic Nadal, but there are a couple of sort of six plus shot rallies, and you can sort of imagine Goran's thinking, oh, n- not rallies, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's certainly not what he, what was typical that nobody did this and actually Goran had won clay court titles he could rally it's just that you don't expect it it was really jarring to watch this kind of tennis on on grass but a lot of people and Larry Stefanki mentioned it in the interview compared Agassi's return to, to that of Jimmy Connors as who's the previous best return of server from the watching that I did he would do it reactively he would managed to reach out with the two hands or or to his left on the one-handed forehand and be able to deflect a ball past you using the pace of an opponent. Agassi was standing on the baseline like a sharpshooter and trying to tee off on your best serve. There was no there was no blocking the the return back ever. It was a full swing and if you connected you were in trouble. And 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 the diff- every, a lot of people talk about Djokovic as being the best returner and, and like you say I'm not going to doubt that because I haven't seen it against this kind of player that would be my dream match I think in a way now is to put Djokovic in 92 and see if he could do to Becker, McEnroe and Goran what Agassi was doing it's like it's like the it's like a hand-eye coordination test and it's like the best way of measuring that is stand on the baseline against a guy whacking serves at you and see if you can get them back. And Agassi has done that better than anyone. I mean, the way he does it in this final is extraordinary. And yet it was Goran that won the first set on the tie break. And in order to do that, he saved set point at 6-7 in that tie break with a second serve ace that is right on the line. And although, I mean, it was a, it was a, breathtaking jaw-dropping moment and I loved it but obviously with the benefit of hindsight it kind of can look like a a writing on the wall sort of Hail Mary pass type moment because he's thinking cripes I've missed my first serve and it's Andre Agassi down the other end and I don't want to get involved in a in a second in a rally I don't want to give him a look on this second serve so I'll just go for a a boomer and it, it did the trick that time but you can't you can't rely on that throughout. Well, I, th- I think ultimately that's how the match played out. That's what told in the end because Agassi was leading two sets, two sets to one um, and he was the better player in those first three sets. Then he lost his way and Goran really struck a purple patch and won the fourth set really easily um, and goes into the fifth set playing probably the better of the two and has an extended game of juices and, and opportunities in the fifth set when he is prepared to stay on the baseline and trade and, and he's often getting the better of it. Um, but what Stefanki also told me separately that, that we didn't hear in the interview there is what Agassi achieved in this match that he'd never achieved before was a mental application to not give in to the frustration of walking side to side and being aced. I mean, the ball still went flying past him, what, 37 times in the match uh, from aces. And he said that a little bit like Sampras in the semi-final, Agassi was known for if it's not working, if, if if he's not connecting, he would kind of bail out a bit mentally and he would often lose quite heavily um, rather than dig in. Earning him the nickname Andre Agassi, apparently. <laughs> Indeed. And in this match, he just accepted it. He accepted the inevitability of aces and waited for his chance and when that chance came he struck and then halfway through the match John McEnroe joins the commentary of this and and he says the same thing he says this is the best I've ever seen Agassi mentally and a point that Chris Everett makes is that Agassi isn't playing scared tennis and I think what she means by that is that there's this 
there's this clarity that he's got in this match, which he didn't have in his previous Grand Slam finals because he was playing, well, certainly the ones on on clay in the French Open, he was playing baseliners and he had there were different ways that he could win. Whereas in this match, he it was clear he needed to get Goran served back when he could and the rest of the time he needed to accept that he wasn't going to be able to get it back all the time. And that, that clarity of thought led to him playing really smart tennis and also not panicking when he did lose that first set because he knew that eventually his chances would come. And with the passing of time, that's become an an, an even more uh, spot-on bit of punditry and, and commentary from Chris Evert because cause after the match, one of the, the things that, that Agassi says, I mean, he gives good quotes, doesn't he? So there's some lovely little one-liners about the win and what it meant to him and and what got him over the line. But one of the, the pithiest little ones is, I lost three Grand Slam finals because I was afraid to lose. And this time, I wasn't afraid to lose. So banishing that that fear, something that, that Everton and McEnroe, fellow fellow champions, was, was something that they could could see in him that day and and he was Andre Gagassi no more <laughs> until today when we've sort of accidentally resurrected the nickname <laughs> yes well, it's 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 tells a story of its of its own doesn't it and and I do find it quite ironic that this guy who was known for just rolling the dice and going for his shots in those three other Grand Slam finals. I mean, he was close against Korea. That was five sets. But against Gomez, didn't play well. Uh, he was absolutely overwhelmed by Sampras in the US Open final. That was three sets in 1990. Um, and this one, he, he kind of found his best stuff for the biggest day. And uh, yeah, I mean... It was re- very emotional, actually, when he when he finally breaks because the the holding serve that final game, it's not loads and loads of juices, but it's incredibly tense, isn't it? Because Goran's four five down, he serves two double faults immediately, and then he manages to just I think on his sixth serve of the game hits the line. I mean, it looks like he's hit three double faults in a row. Um, and he gets back to, to level. Um, but yeah, the final moment is um, is incredibly emotional. I mean, like I say, at the time, I was just probably throwing throwing things at the wall in frustration. And you mentioned when we were watching it that, that at the time there were accusations that he was he was milking the the moment, the celebration, Agassi. Yeah, he he was always regarded as a bit of a Hollywood actor as a sports person and. Could you ever believe a word he said? And I'd look, I do believe he hammed things up. I think he he understood a moment. I don't think he. I don't think he was hamming that up for a second. I think he was just overwhelmed with emotion, and he fell to the ground. and um, And people didn't really do that back then. They raised their fist in victory and then walked to the net and shake hands. You know, it just you you rarely saw that outpouring of of emotion, and and I think for a lot of people it was still a very conservative sport, relatively speaking. For and I think for a lot of people it was just all a bit much for the, for those that maybe didn't like him. But he he got a lot of people interested in the sport who didn't give a stuff otherwise. Yeah, the um in the intro to the match on on the coverage that one of the opening lines was even if you know nothing about tennis, you probably know Andre Agassi. And that was why you hated him, David. <laughs> <laughs> but I grew to love him. Uh, I mean, and actually, funny enough, uh, I, I all the way through the, the years that would follow, I was a Pete Sampras fan. If I was going to watch the two of them play each other, I wanted Sampras to win. Um, when I met them on the tour, when I became an ATP communication manager six years later and met Agassi for the first time, I found him to be a great guy, a really kind, um, friendly, welcoming person to somebody who was pretty nervous being around these people. And um, yeah, he really won me over as a person um, in the late 90s. And and presumably was was a a pleasure to cover journalistically once you once you left the BBC, because of course he had a a really uh, once you left the ATP, sorry, because of course he had a... um, a really extended career, a, a, uh, a longevity that I'm not sure many would have predicted back in back in 1992. 
not in the slightest. It, 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 there are certain parallels with the Williams sisters, I would say, when they were would talk, Venus and Serena would both talk about how they didn't expect to have a long career. And I certainly don't think Agassi expected to. I mean, he, he was known coming into this Wimbledon, he was known for ordering, I read, $250 orders of hamburgers from mcdonald's in a single sitting you know for, for him and his mates he didn't live the life how, how many mates <laughs> yeah oh a lot of mates he was big into the party scene and just having you know he, he didn't care he didn't he didn't seem to care too much about conventions and again i almost think he was doing it deliberately to throw it back in people's faces i can win doing it how i want it's pretty hard to spend 250 quid in mcdonald's <laughs> dollars the exchange Do- rate was quite okay. helpful dollars um no, but I mean, I, uh, the point stands. But I think I think that he, I I I think it's he's one of the most interesting players we've ever had because of his different cycles of of career. Because as you say, I mean, he was still playing well into the two thousands, and he was wonderful to cover uh, from from every angle. Yeah, for, and I think probably most tennis journalists that covered his career feel the same, including. Chris Clary of the New York Times. Let's hear from him about what it was like to cover Andre Agassi back in the the nineties and noughties. Well, you know that for American journalists in tennis, it was you were still kind of running on the um, on the energy and I, I guess ultimately the fumes of that golden era. You know, with uh, with McEnroe and Connors and and all that sort of uh, tennis boom in the U.S. And so tennis was still treated in a lot of ways in our country at that stage as, as a not maybe not a major sport. But certainly, you know, an uppercase minor sport, I would say. And um, I think Andre, I think, was just a personality that people gravitated to from the beginning, you know, hot or cold, however you blew on it. You, were, you couldn't really ignore him. And he got a lot of coverage because of, you know, the way he presented himself and the way he looked and everything else. He already had people's attention and he kind of burst through and gotten a lot of mainstream coverage, you know, already in the late 80s with his successes. And, and, um, I think 91 was, was really most interesting in terms of the way that played out because of the whole dynamic with Terry and Courier and, um, you know, Nick openly favoring uh, and deciding really for uh, business and personal reasons to kind of go with uh, Andre and his camp and, and kind of leave Jim aside a little bit there. I know that rankled Jim a lot for a long time. I don't think it does anymore. Those guys are our fast friends at this stage of their lives and have been for a while. But at that point it was really motivational for Jim and Andre, you know, was starting to look like he was a bit brittle um, in these big matches. He just wasn't playing at his highest level. And that, that proved to be the case, I think again there too. And I think he, uh, that was my memory of it was just, you know, just Jim was dialed in focused. He had his moments, but I mean, Andre really uh, was struggling to, you know, to hit the notes he could hit in other matches when the, the pressure wasn't quite as big. And I think that just fed into this whole narrative about you know, style over substance. And some of it was true and a lot of it wasn't. And, and I, to, be, uh, to be fair to the journalists and to all of us, I think um, Andre didn't, wasn't, wasn't always big on full disclosure. That's why his book was so great <laughs> later, later on because we all learned far too much, I think, uh, as it all played out. Um, didn't talk about a lot of things that were going on in his life and things that he was struggling to, to manage. So I think – I think he was he was sort of viewed as a as a punk who needed to learn a lesson a little bit at that stage to some degree, and that that that, that continued for a while. Um, and obviously, as you go on through his career, I mean that that whole thing just shifted on its axis. Maybe not quite completely. There were always a few doubters, but I mean, ultimately, you're the sum of your actions, right? And a lot of amazing actions from Andre. Just, just on just on that, Chris. That being the case, given the stories that you knew about that had been told and his his kind of near misses at the French Open and the US Open where he was kind of expected to come through and then to do it at Wimbledon in 92. That was incredible, wasn't it? Yeah, that really was because that was the place you never figured, you know, considering his I – mean, he didn't go to Australia for, for quite a while either, as we know, but he was a hardcore player. But the grass, I mean, he talked it down, didn't like the rules, didn't like the place. Um I think he uh, was very quick to pounce on the club and all it stood for. And then the whole thing caught the sport by surprise and I think caught him by surprise too, by just what it meant to him. And and um, I think that one in the French Open, you know, that he won in 99 are the, the two 
the two key victories of his career and the ones that he'll always remember, I think, in, in a very special way. And that was, I think, because it was, he'd had all that pressure in places where he was expected to win for that to happen at Wimbledon. I think that's part of the reason he played so well. He was liberated. He was free. I mean, I remember Roger Federer talking about that in, at the Aussie Open, you know, in, uh, in 17, just how great it was to, uh, to come back and play with that freedom. Not having that you know, that that burden of expectation, and I think Andre was free of that, even though he was not free of attention, but certainly free of the expectation on on the grass that he was supposed to win, supposed to fulfill his potential. And it was it was a great twist and very Andre like that it happened there. Yeah, a contrarian, David. He was just like you. You just didn't realize it. Yeah, just without the talent that he had, <laughs> I could have been a contender if only I could have played tennis. Eh. No comment. <laughs> Just a final word on uh, on Paul Goran Ivanovic and, and the absolutely desolate figure that he cut at the end of that match. Because I was wanting to reach into the screen and 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 I was wondering whether it would be comforting for him in that moment in in June 1992 for him to be told what the future would hold for him would he focus on the comfort of knowing he would eventually win a Wimbledon or would he (laughs) focus on the agony of what he would have to go through before that would become reality because they uh, they flashed up uh, an image of Jon Tiriak in the crowd who was who was well he was lots of players uh, managers at the time wasn't he famously Boris Becker's manager but he he was managing Goran at the time and he had told Bud Bud Collins before that Wimbledon that he thought Goran would Wimbledon win Wimbledon five times and most people thought that he was you know given that serve destined to to on and off dominate at the tournament and of course he did win one. And it's possibly the most memorable one ever. And, and we know Goran now and we know it's enough. But poor 20-year-old Goran <laughs> probably wouldn't have relished the prospect of of what he would have to go through to get there. No, the, I think the, the nine years of agony and the several attempts that he had and near misses, goodness me, I, I'm just so relieved that he got his moment because... Uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody look that sad. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Jana Novotna. Um, but oh. it's uh, similar kinds of stories in terms of just the weight, the weight, the weight, and finally um, getting over the line. Um, I think he would have taken definite comfort for that from that if he'd have been able to tell him. Uh, even more in '98 when. I've certainly never seen anybody look as devastated. I thought Goran might retire on the spot in 1998 when he didn't win it. <laughs> Great. Looking forward to um, that harrowing, uh, <laughs> harrowing experience of recalling all of that. Of course, we'll be covering the 2001 final between Goran Ivanovic and, and Pat Rafter, and in the process, the the Goran Ivanovic story. But not yet. Um, where are we going next, Matt? Well, you, David, mentioned her. We're telling the Jana Novotna story next. The loss and then the triumph. Um, the whole story throughout that sort of went on throughout the nineties is our is the focus of tomorrow's show. Yeah, I can't wait for this show. I'm kind of dreading it because I think it's going to be really emotional. I I did an interview with um, with Hannah Mandlakova, who was the coach of Jana Novotna throughout all of those triumphs and and low points throughout all of the all of her career really and it was well it was a very emotional experience to do that interview and I can't wait to tell the Novotna story it's one of the most important ones in the history of Wimbledon but you know Novotna is no longer with us and um, that's such a sad tragic fact so um, yeah look for (laughs) look forward to uh, more more sadness pathos um but hopefully some smiles tomorrow always from david yeah well i mean there's no there's no way to to feel anything but sad about the fact that she isn't with us but the the fact that she had her her career arc at wimbledon with its low points its emotion and ultimately its crowning moments is something that is unavoidable for us to cover here on the tennis podcast and, and and frankly a privilege to be able to to do that um and i've heard catherine's interview with with hannah mandlikova and it 
brought me to tears in Sainsbury's when I was doing my shopping. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got some funny looks that day. Uh, but I mean, it's uh, that's what that's what this is all about. It's about trying to relive the, these incredible stories, no matter how upsetting, no matter how wonderful. Tell them all because they all need telling. Yeah, well said. Well, we'll be telling another one tomorrow. A very a very big and important one and uh, there's still nine more of these to come I almost did some very bad math then and told you there was seven more to come there's nine more to come we can't wait and uh, we're loving them Matt, David, thank you Gerald, thank you if you're listening I hope you are because it's part of your duty as uh, as official Wimbledon mascot of the tennis podcast he was just listening for this bit <laughs> he just rewinds to the end Gerald, thanks for being a rock star and uh, we'll be back tomorrow with uh, a trip down Jana Novotna memory lane. We'll see you then. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.